and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Insomnia can put a strain on any relationship. You don't need to be a systemic relationship-based therapist to know that. Partners' insomnia may interrupt the other partner's sleep. It may have gotten so bad that they're now sleeping in different bedrooms. Persistent insomnia can also cause fatigue, irritability, and depression that puts additional strain on relationships. The good news is that there is a highly effective therapy for insomnia that you might not know about. It's called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for insomnia, CBTI. CBTI helps people to change their thoughts and their habits. And there's several CB2 tools that work together to improve sleep. Some can help a person make lifestyle changes. Other of the skills can help a person relax and change their unhelpful thoughts. So in our first installment of 2024, in the beginning of the sixth season of the AMFT podcast, I'm so happy to have Dr. Don Posner with us, who is really going to propose a whole new way about how people and how therapists, especially relation-based therapists, think of sleep. First, he's going to normalize the sleep problems that many of us experience. So if you're sleeping poorly right now, he says, don't freak out. It's natural or normal. He's got a bunch of tips for us, how to deal with insomnia, some which you never heard before, and some that will help you and your clients. Dr. Don Posner is one of the leaders in the field of CBT for insomnia. He is the founder and president of Sleepwell Consultants. He's an adjunct clinical associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Posner is a member of the American Academy of sleep medicine, and he's a founding member of the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. And I discovered him by reading seminal work. He is one of the co-authors of Cognitive Behavioral Treatment of Insomnia, a session-by-session guide. What a way to start out our sixth season. In this episode, we're going to talk with Don the difference between chronic and acute insomnia, the importance of structure when it comes to good sleep, including why wake-up time is so important, and why we shouldn't try to compensate for a bad night's sleep. In addition to that, he'll highlight the main cont- components of CBT for insomnia. And again, stressing why this work is so important when we expand the system to include our partners as all of our systemic relation-based listeners to this show know. So if you're joining us for the first time because this topic appealed to you or you're a seasoned Listener of the podcast, we welcome you, and I will be back after the interview with Don. 
Working as an independent marriage and family therapist can be very rewarding. But working outside of the typical W-2 employee structure can be a difficult transition for many of us. That's where a company like Opolis comes in. Opolis is helping independent therapists focus on what they do best, while Opolis manages the back end. Opolis leverages group buying power, helping you save up to 50% on premium healthcare options through Cigna. Through their platform, you can receive bi-monthly pay stubs, annual W-2s, and compliant tax withholding and remittance. Learn more at opolis, that's O-P-O-L-I-S dot co slash therapist. Opolis dot co slash therapist. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Don Posner, Dr. Don Posner, welcome to the show. Can't wait to talk about one of our most requested topics, sleep issues and how our audience, a systemic therapist, can work with their individual couple and family clients around that. If you're familiar with the show, we always like to know about our experts. First, tell us about your therapeutic origin story and where did your interest in working with clients with insomnia and sleep disorders come from? So first of all, Eli, thank you so much for having me. I'm always glad to be able to talk to just about anyone about sleep, and I can do so for quite some time. So if I get too long-winded, please let me know. But again, thank you to you, and thank you for your audience to listening. The, the story in sleep medicine is that sleep medicine is almost no one comes to sleep medicine except by accident, and the story was no different for me. It's a multidisciplinary field. You'll see people from neurology, psychiatry, pulmonary medicine, and then psychologists and social workers and so forth. And most of the time, again, most people are not doing this because they're getting training or they decided at a young age they wanted to be sleep doctors, but more that they're in those other disciplines and then somehow they accidentally brush against sleep and get, as we say, bitten by the bug. The, that story is true for me. I was I was mostly an anxiety disorders expert. I did a lot of clinical work in anxiety disorders of all types. Moved for a short time to Peoria, Illinois, where there are two sleep labs, or at the time there were, this is back in 1988, two sleep labs facing each other across the highway. You literally could look in the window, out the window from one and see into the window of the other. This was the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Peoria. Before I got there, Shortly before, one of the sleep centers had put out a notice to all the psychiatrists in the community, basically saying that we've got this group of people who we put through sleep studies. They don't have sleep apnea. They're just not sleeping. They didn't even call it insomnia. They just said they're just not sleeping. And it's a ready-made population, and we're not sure what to do with them. If you guys want them, we've got a ready-made referral source for you. And when I got there, it turns out that nobody in the psychiatric community had answered the call, not one. And so they basically at the university said, do you know anything about this? And I said, no, nothing really, but I can take a look at the literature. And I did. And it was incredibly behaviorally focused and something right up my alley. And I thought I can maybe try out some of this stuff. And I started trying it with some patients. And as I, I might say later, it, it works exceptionally well. And I was bitten by the bug and the rest is history. Yeah. And you've made a career of it ever since. Let's get a baseline definition because I think every listener can relate to 
a sleepless night or multiple sleepless nights, but that doesn't necessarily classify as insomnia. So let's start out talking the difference between acute and chronic insomnia. Perfect. That's the perfect question. Thank you for that. As you noted, I go around the world basically asking people how they sleep and what they do. But I also basically always ask how many people here in the audience have ever had a bad night's sleep and it's universal. Every hand goes up. Doesn't matter how big the audience is. So everyone can relate to having a bad night, but you're absolutely correct. We define that as acute insomnia. In the mental health profession, I would say that just about everything we learned about insomnia, which is not much, we don't get much training in that. I would say to your audience that I would bet that the, uh, the page for insomnia in their DSMs is not dog-eared. But we don't spend a lot of time on it because primarily we think of it as something that's secondary to everything else. And everything we learned about insomnia is true in that regard with regard to acute insomnia. That is, acute insomnia is usually due to some stressor, something that's bothering you. It doesn't have to be a negative valence. It can be happy or sad, excited or anxious. It can be biological. You can have a cold and a cough and not sleep well. You can have a new baby in the house and not sleep well. You can have a bed partner or a new bed partner and not sleep well. You can be stressed at work and not sleep well. We could go on this forever. But the hope is that eventually you adapt to the problem, treat the problem on its own, goes away like that cold, and away goes the insomnia. And that's the way we learned it. But then we extrapolated that to chronic insomnia and thought and assumed that the same thing would happen and it does not. So to define what is now called in the DSM insomnia disorder, that is having trouble either getting to sleep, maintaining sleep, or waking too early. And you have to have one or more of those problems for more than three nights in a week. And that has to be going on for a period of more than three months. And at that point, we define that as chronic insomnia. The, the acute insomnia that we spoke of a moment ago is basically anything short of that. So anything from about two days to, let's call it two months or two and a half. And the research, what does it tell us about the effect, not just on individual functioning and health, but on relational health and satisfaction? Yeah. So from an individual point of view, I can tell you that having chronic insomnia is, is not a good thing. Every aspect of our lives, it should not surprise anyone in your audience that, that sleep's important. And we say that a lot, um, but we often give it lip service without really paying attention to just what a focal point in our work it should be. Sleep can impact everything. And if your sleep is disrupted or you're not getting enough or for a variety of reasons, it can be any kind of sleep disorder, it's going to have impact on medical morbidity, including increased risk for hypertension, metabolic syndrome, cardiac problems, increased blood pressure, and there's some data on things like Alzheimer's and other dementia. And it also has ramifications for psychiatric, psychological comorbidity. Again, we always think of it being a one-way street. It's hard to imagine a diagnosis in the DSM that doesn't have listed as a symptom insomnia. And we think of it as being due to that other problem. But the truth is, once it becomes chronic, it is not usually due to that problem. It's due to other things. And once that happens, it's hard to get rid of. Just trying to get rid of the other disorders doesn't make the insomnia go away, as we were taught in graduate school. And then once that insomnia is there, it complicates the treatment of everything else you are treating. 
it is, again, a two-way street. There's data to indicate that if you have a few months of insomnia without anything else, that you become two to four more time likely to develop a first episode of depression. So that sounds like a risk factor to me. For sure. And as it pertains to couples, what do you think are the most common couple sleep problems? Because a lot of times, even if you can sleep and have had no history of it, if your partner is not sleeping, it's going to affect the couple. And certainly a lot of our audience, uh, couple and family therapists will hear a lot about the kind of ripple effect of one partner's sleep issues affecting the overall quality of the relationship. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. There's a, um, a kind of humorous joke. It doesn't hold true all the time, but often enough that I say I rarely question my patients about how their, and this is with regard to insomnia, how their partner sleeps, because I know the answer, which is they sleep great. There's a joke we say, which is insomniacs never meet each other. That is usually if I'm talking to somebody who has insomnia, I can pretty much assume that their partner sleeps like a rock, maybe snoring, and the, uh, the patient I'm dealing with wants to kill their partner with that said rock. So with regard to insomnia, it's not often that's happening. And patients often worry that if I'm tossing and turning or I get out of the bed or I do any of those things, it's going to interfere with my partner's sleep. But more often than not, that doesn't turn out to be the case, that good sleepers are good sleepers and they can be roused by things, but they will can get back to sleep. And so that worry is often unnecessary and one of the things that we have to work on with the patient. From the point of view of other sleep disorders, that's a different story. So, of course, there are going to be people who have partners who have sleep apnea or just plain snoring. And, of course, that snoring and the snoring from sleep apnea can disrupt a person's sleep. And certainly if a person with insomnia is married to or using the bed with someone who has apnea, that's going to make their ability to get to sleep even more difficult, and that becomes more frustrating. And any kind of frustration like that, as your audience probably knows, can serve as an irritant to other kinds of problems in the relationship. Not to mention the fact that when people are not sleeping, one of the side effects of not sleeping is to become more irritable, and that doesn't bode well for partner communication and so forth. There are other more rare sleep disorders that can really impact bed partners even more so in the sense that sometimes the patient doesn't even know they have the problem. In fact, people with apnea rarely know that they have apnea. It's the bed partner that knows that something's off. But there are other things like parasomnias, like sleepwalking, where it's the bed partner that knows this better. There are disorders like REM behavior disorder, where somebody is really acting out dreams and becoming quite violent, which can be quite distressing for the bed partner and sometimes harmful. So those are more extreme examples of the ways that various kinds of sleep disorders can affect the partner in the bedroom. So today we are going to talk about the components of CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy, for insomnia. And I think it's important first to start that discussion is as therapists, we psychoeducate our clients a lot. And, and in part of, I think, any type of good treatment around this issue has to deal with kind of educating people on good sleep hygiene. What are the vitals, the essentials to know about good sleep hygiene? So this opens up a can of worms. So the first part of the can of worms is sleep hygiene is something that everybody is familiar with that term. Many of our patients are familiar with that term. 
And by the time somebody gets to see me, I can tell you that most of them have some of the best sleep hygiene one might want to see in the world because they've heard it all before, they've tried it all before, and it doesn't work. And it may be that a lot of people in your audience say, yeah, okay, CBTI, that's great. If they're equating sleep hygiene with CBTI, let me say at the outfront, at the outset, that's a mistake. Sleep hygiene is a component. It's a small component of CBTI, uh, but not a major factor. And the reason that it may seem like it's weak tea to, to go over sleep hygiene with somebody who has a chronic insomnia, um, they're usually probably going to find, unless that person was egregiously breaking the rules, that it's not going to make enough of an impact to feel like they've completely resolved the insomnia for their patient. The reason for that is that sleep hygiene, most of what we would say in sleep hygiene or that should be on the list for sleep hygiene has to do with things like substances. What are you consuming? We talk about caffeine. We talk about alcohol. We talk about nicotine. What is the bedroom environment like? How much light is there? How much sound is there? How comfortable is your mattress? What is the temperature? All of those things are very good. I would say that there's not a lot of dedicated research to most of those items. A lot of it comes from folklore. There's nothing wrong with folklore. There's some wisdom in folklore. There's wisdom in common sense. But the best way to characterize why sleep hygiene is not, a, as a, in and of itself, a good treatment for chronic insomnia is that sleep hygiene is like dental hygiene. And if we think of it, dental hygiene would be things like flossing and brushing. Those are good things. And if somebody doesn't do that properly, any good dentist should take a moment to instruct their patients on how to floss and brush properly. But it's preventative, not curative. And that's the way to think about sleep hygiene as well. It is preventative and not curative. And so to extend the analogy, uh, no amount of flossing and brushing in the world is going to fix a cavity once the cavity is present. The cavity needs to be directly targeted. It needs to be drilled and filled. The dentist needs to do that, so there needs to be professional help. And along the way, they might teach some better techniques for flossing and brushing to prevent more cavities, but the flossing and brushing itself is not going to fix the problem. Likewise, we know that as a monotherapy, sleep hygiene alone is not sufficient to fix insomnia in any way. And all you need to know about that is that often it's used as a placebo condition in research that we conduct on CBTI. I think when people say, oh, I'll, I'll just do some psychoeducation, some sleep hygiene around some routines, and then I'll just do traditional CBT. I'll help people counter their anxious or catastrophic thoughts at night. But this treatment is much more than this. So I'm hoping you'll tell us about the other two major components today, stimulus con control and sleep restriction. But before that, I get a lot of questions. People talk about the evening routine, Don. And I've always been told by the sleep experts I've talked to, it's the morning routine that is much more important. It's waking up at the same time every day, especially if you're a person that doesn't have a lot of structure. And that's, I've been told, is much more important than the evening routine. Can you weigh in on that? Yeah, I would agree 100%. You've done your homework. There's a list of things that I think of as a new way of looking at sleep hygiene that are much more pertinent to, at the very least, targeting acute insomnia when it happens so that it does not become chronic. I would still say that this list, and we can talk a little bit about it today, for somebody who has chronic insomnia, for, and by the way, once you get past that three-month period in time, usually you're talking about years <laughs> 
and decades. Those are the people that I see. It really just doesn't go away. And I would say even this list is for most people probably not going to make it go away and they really should seek specific trained professional help in CBTI and behavioral sleep medicine, which may be needed as well. There's nothing more important than wake up time, much more of an important variable to keep steady than bedtime. And I was with a group of other sleep professionals at a conference one year, and we were all saying if we were going to redesign the sleep hygiene list to make it potent, what would we put on that list? And the number one agreed upon item on that list was wake up at the same time every day. And by every day, at least five days a week, there are plenty of good sleepers in the world that essentially keep that kind of schedule. They wake up at the same time five days a week because that's what we call school nights and work nights, right? We go to bed, we get up at the same time to make it to our various activities. And on the weekends, we do things differently. We might shift that schedule a bit. We might sleep a little bit more potentially than we get to during the week. But those two days do not rock the entire world if you're already a good sleeper. And going back to the five days a week schedule will do enough to entrain your circadian rhythm to stay pretty even and pretty healthy. It's interesting to note for that reason that one big area where people start to develop insomnia problems is when they retire. Why? Because they throw out that structure. And there's other structure here to talk about, but they throw out the structure of same time getting up in the morning. The other place where we saw this was during COVID. And again, you saw a lot of people no longer needing to maintain that structure because they were working from home or they could keep their same hours or what have you, and therefore their sleep too became a mess simply because they started getting up at different times. Let me put it to you this way. Getting up today at six and tomorrow at seven and the next day at eight is not unlike each day traveling across time zones, taking a flight from the East Coast to say New York to Chicago, and on the very next night, the very next day coming back home to the East, then spend a day there, now fly out to, say, Denver, then fly back the next day and stay back in the east for one day, and then the very next day fly out to Los Angeles and stay there for a day and come back to the east for a day. Yeah, you'd be jet-lagged. You'd, you'd be jet-lagged and you wouldn't feel very good, and that's exactly what happens when we do not maintain regular wake times. We wind up getting what we would call social jet-lag. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I find this fascinating. So obviously a clinician working with individuals or couples with sleep disorder needs to know this information. But we said the sleep hygiene part is just a relatively small component. No matter what type of theoretical orientation is, everybody knows CBT. But tell us generally how CBT for insomnia or CBTI differs from traditional CBT. So when we start our trainings, and we do trainings all over the country, and now we've been doing this internationally, when we start our trainings, we say to everybody, if you are somebody who practices CBT in other areas, you may be somebody who's well-grounded in learning theory, behavioral theory, reinforcement theory, cognitive theory, schema, all of those sorts of things, and maybe a very gifted and seasoned clinician. Such a person might go to a workshop because they now would like to learn more about how to treat, let's say, post-traumatic stress disorder. And you're going to get a day-long workshop, which will teach you the bare bones of, okay, here's a step-by-step -step procedure, techniques you can use, things you want to measure, what you want to do in these circumstances, and so forth. 
Of course, a workshop is never enough, really, to get seasoned at being able to carry out that therapy, but it's a good start. And we expect that when you start seeing patients who don't necessarily conform to the examples that were given in the course, you still have a background of experience and learning that allows you in a CBT format to think outside the box and to pull in pieces that you've learned from that workshop into what you're doing with your patients that is informed by not just what you learned in that course, but by all of your experience. All of that is true for CBTI. The problem that all of us are facing is that, and I can say this fairly assuredly, almost none of us got any training whatsoever in sleep medicine. And sleep medicine is an entire field. It could take us a good year to learn all the facets of sleep medicine. And of course, when we do a course, I can't take that year, but we take almost two hours at the beginning of that course to start to educate people on at least basic sleep medicine issues that give a lot of information that will then inform the treatment of insomnia through CBTI when you're seeing patients and need to think outside of the box. Without that training, without that understanding, it becomes, I think, very hard to carry out this treatment as opposed to, say, other CBTIs. So let me just carry on from there to say that we're not today going to, it takes us, we do often, my partner and I do often two-day trainings, and we used to do three-day trainings to get a lot of these pieces of information into people so that they can utilize it and make the therapy sing. So I'm not going to train people on how to do the various aspects of sleep restriction and stimulus control, but what I can say is, how does acute insomnia start to morph into or evolve into chronic insomnia? And what we've learned is that what starts to happen is that somewhere in that period of time, somewhere in the three months, Whatever the stressor might have been to set off the initial insomnia, we call those precipitating events. Again, it can be all those things I talked about. Retirement, a cold, a new marriage, a new bed partner, a new child, a trip the next day that you're all excited about. Anything can precipitate insomnia. But when that begins to go on for several weeks, what starts to happen for some people is that they begin to shift their focus as well, not only onto the worry or the problem du jour, but also onto the fact that it's now been a while since they've been sleeping well, and they're really starting to feel the cumulative effects of that. And they start to look at their sleep and start to try to compensate for what's going on in their sleep. And more often than not, what people will do is do things to wildly screw up the mechanisms that go into good sleep health. And then once they throw those off kilter, it is very hard and counterintuitive for people to understand how to put those pieces back without, again, therapy. What we talk about in what is our main model for CBTI is a 3P model in which, yeah, everybody brings to the table some predisposing factors, and then I said there's the second P, which is precipitance. That starts the acute insomnia. But really the target of CBTI is what we call perpetuating factors. And the vast majority of those perpetuating factors are factors that have gone awry in one's attempt to fix their sleep. So 
what I can start to talk about to your audience is what some of those factors are. There are things that go into normal sleep, one of those being circadian rhythm. I mentioned that already, and I said it without defining it because I think most people have a sense of circadian rhythm. We all know that one, and a lot of our patients do. But the other main factor that dovetails with that is what we call homeostatic sleep pressure or sleep drive. And not unlike hunger, which builds every moment you go from your last meal, so does your sleep drive build every moment that you're awake. In fact, waking builds sleep drive. It's a buildup of certain also things in the brain, like adenosine is a chemical that builds up a waste product, really, that builds up in the brain that makes us sleepy. You want that to accumulate by the end of the night, because when you go to sleep, what you're doing, one of the mechanisms of sleep is to wash that out of your brain. And then you start again. So there's this homeostatic drive that builds sleep pressure over the course of the day and eases sleep pressure over the course of the night. And the problem becomes that people begin to do things in their daily life to compensate for their acute insomnia that begin to weaken sleep drive and make it so that by the time you go to bed, the sleep drive that you're bringing with you to bed is not as robust as it should be. And that's going to create problems with being able to get to sleep or being able to maybe make it through the night without waking up and not being able to get back to sleep. Likewise, as people begin to compensate for poor sleep, they begin to alter where they're sleeping. They'll let themselves sleep at various times of the day to compensate. They will sleep in the morning to try to get more sleep. They will go to bed earlier or inadvertently fall asleep earlier. And now they're changing the timing of the messages to the internal clock. So let's just when- operationalize that for a second. People tell you, oh, a nap is good. If a nap, depending how long it is, can break up that homeostatic drive, right? That's correct. The other thing to keep in mind is When I am awake, I am building sleep drive. When I am asleep, I am shedding sleep drive, but I do so exponentially. So what I build during the day linearly, I am shedding exponentially. And that stands to reason because if it takes me 16 hours to build the sleep drive I need, it only takes eight to eliminate it. So you can see how exponentially it's going away at almost a ratio of two to one. So when I nap during the day, especially if I'm napping at not the best times to nap, then I am, yes, I am exponentially shedding sleep drive so that by the time I'm going to bed at night, I've got less available in the tank that I would have had I stayed awake all day. But that's minor compared to the other ways that people can weaken sleep drive by maybe crashing on the weekends or sleeping much more in the morning to compensate for a bad night. We say that one of the cardinal sins of of insomnia or a day of insomnia is to compensate for that insomnia. The idea is to just get back on track. So we often say that when you have a night of insomnia, my partner likes to say, do nothing, by which he means don't alter your schedule. Try if you can not to nap. Certainly get up at the same time of day, even though you lost a lot of sleep during that course of night, go to bed at the same time the next night, because that's going to start to put you on the road to a better night's sleep. So what I'm taking from this first part is that you want as much routine. So this idea of catching up on your sleeper will be okay because I'll get it back on the weekend. It's more, no, stable habits are what we're shooting for here. What are some other perpetuating factors? So I'm going to give you a big one, which is I always talk of about as the 
most insidious perpet- uh, perpetuating factor of them all. And to introduce you to that, l- let me ask you, Eli, are you a good sleeper? I actually am, but my wife is not. Okay, so we'll leave her out of it for okay. the moment, but let me just stick with you. So I, I hope this works without being able to see you and with the audience being able to see you, but let's forget whatever your habits might be. I don't care really whether you read in bed, watch TV in bed, do anything else. At some point, is it fair to say that you put your head down on the pillow, turn the lights out, close the book, turn the TV off, and put your head down ready to sleep? Yes, sir. And at that point, what do you do to get to sleep? Uh, Yeah, let me stop you. So it's the, uh, is exactly the right response that I was looking for. And that's what I get when I ask this question around the world of good sleepers. And the answer looks something like squinting, raising the shoulders, going, I have no idea. Nothing is a common answer. It's pretty automatic, just as you said, is a common answer. At no point has anyone who's a good sleeper ever said to me that the first thing I have to do is empty my mind. Nor has anyone ever said to me, the first thing I have to do is breathe into account to four, hold to account to four, and breathe out to account to four. Nor do progressive muscle relaxation exercises or imagery exercises or listen to the sounds of the beach. No good sleeper has ever said anything like that. It's relatively uh, automatic, not intentional, not purposeful. It's a product of just being in sync. Yep. Sleep is like heart rate, digestion, perspiration, respiration, and you have about as much luck willing yourself to sleep as digesting faster. And the problem is that one of the perpetuating factors that people with insomnia start to get into is something we call sleep effort. And the minute you start to turn your mind toward, I've got to try to empty my mind to get to sleep. I've got to try to relax to get to sleep. I've got to close my eyes tightly and try to get to sleep. You're done for. You're absolutely done for. So ultimately in CBTI, one of the things we're aiming for over the weeks is to start to help to gently get somebody to the point where they're willing to let go of any given bad night, to understand that they never had control over that and never will. But that when these other things are in line, when sleep drive lines up with circadian rhythm, when you're not trying to sleep at all, when you're not particularly worrying about anything, and when your bed is a good conditioned stimulus for sleep, sleep will happen. It will happen eventually. And that's where we try to return people to. That's another perpetuating factor. Of course, people will worry about, my God, I'm not sleeping. What's going to happen to me tomorrow? How am I going to function? And just like any good cognitive therapy for other disorders, there's a kernel of truth in any of those worries, but they are distorted to the point of catastrophe. I can tell all of your folks and, and any of the patients they deal with that what we know is that when you have a bad night of sleep, Your ability to contend with the things you usually contend with, like your work, are almost not impacted at all. You don't feel good, but in the same way that you go and you get your work done with a cold, with a headache, with any other kinds of problems that might be going on, you gut it out through the day and it all works. Same thing with, if I got no sleep tonight, same thing would happen to me tomorrow. So what you're doing is not trying to sleep too hard, and then you are trying to let sleep come when it comes, just by following the rules. And the last perpetuating factor is Pavlov and conditioning. Our patients with insomnia cling to the mattress for dear life, hoping and praying and wishing to fall asleep. And all they're doing is associating their bedtime routine 
They're going to bed, trying to get to sleep. They're associating it all with sleep effort, with anxiety, with increased tension and frustration. And it doesn't take long before walking into the bedroom makes our patients feel anxious. A good sign of this is they'll say, gee, I was really sleepy on the sofa. I ran to the bedroom to try to get some sleep. And as soon as I got into bed, I was wide awake. That's just conditioned insomnia. And so again, we need to extinguish that response in this work, and we need to eventually recondition the bed to once again be a conditioned stimulus for sleepiness and sleep. And by the way, that is not something that can happen in a night. Pavlov did not stop the dogs from salivating by eliminating one meal with the tuning fork. It takes place over a series of weeks. And so that's one of the hardest messages for patients to grab onto is that whatever you do isn't going to work tonight. That in many ways tonight, the things we ask you to do in CBTI make tonight sacrificed. That the idea is to let go, lose the battle, to win the war another night. The typical course of treatment, we think of CBT as manualized, time limited. As far as the amount of sessions, if somebody is interested, if I'm telling a client what to expect. If I'm, again, losing the battle to win the war, how long will it take me to win the war? Yeah. Patients ask that all the time. And I will say, look, we're not going to put a time limit on it because then you're always going to be looking to, you said next Friday, and that's a recipe for insomnia. But what I can say to most patients is that if one is on board and not unlike physical therapy, this therapy is not unlike that. If you're doing the work, if you're putting in the exercises, if you're doing the things that you've been asked to do, then the likelihood is, I can tell you that if I can harness sleep drive and get circadian rhythm a little bit better under control, somebody after six years of insomnia can be sleeping much better after a week. But that's not the whole therapy, and there's more that needs to be done over that period of time. So the general length of sessions that you see being stated are, is anywhere from between, I'd say, four and eight sessions. Those don't have to be weekly necessarily. In the beginning, when I practice, I like to do the first few weekly because pe there's a lot of education. There's a lot of learning to be done by the patient. There's a lot of things to be tried, and, the, and, and, and I, as a clinician, have to check in on how those things are going. But once a patient starts to get the gist of it and understands where it's taking them and may have already tasted some of the success of the program, um, then it's usually somewhat self-sustaining, and then we can often spread out the sessions. So when I was at Brown Medical School um, for 25 years doing this work, I basically would say that the average length of stay in my program was five visits, somewhere in between two and a half and three months in length of time. Five visits spread over that period of time. Some people a little shorter, some people a little longer, going to eight or nine or 10 or 12 visits is usually only because the patient is taking a little longer to get on board, to buy the solutions and to try them out. So many of our listeners will be dealing with this in the context of a couple. So a partner that wants to support their insomniac partner, because I'm sure that while much of this is in the individual routine, a lot of it can play into the couple routine, especially if they're going to sleep at the same time or one person likes to watch TV and the other person doesn't, how would you advise a partner to be supportive of their insomniac spouse? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing is I already joked that insomniacs never meet each other. And it's also true. Another thing to understand about sleep medicine is that we all have a sleep 
number, which having nothing to do with the sleep number bed, we have a sleep need number. The number that I would, it, I, I almost, I've started to say in my courses, I'm going to be like a clairvoyant who can predict what the number is that's floating in all of your heads. And the number is eight. And that number was floated out there a long time ago by my brethren, by the sleep medicine, various academies. It's not really eight. Now they'll put it at somewhere between seven and nine, but those are just standard deviations. And what we need to understand is there is no universal number. It's no more true that everyone should get eight hours of sleep uh, than, than basically every male in this country needs to be six foot tall. The first thing is that every one of your patients has a, their own unique sleep need number. And how do you know they're getting the right number? If they get that number every night and they feel perfectly good and functioning perfectly well on all aspects during the day, they're probably getting close to their sleep need. And for some people, that's going to be eight, but for some, it's going to be seven. And for some, it's going to be six. And for some, it might be even five and a half and others, it might be nine. I say this because I also want to get to sleep phase. Where we get that seven hours, let's say you're a seven-hour sleeper, is wildly changes over the course of the lifespan. Your sleep phase is when you are best able to get your seven. And we all have a sense of this. All of us have a sense of ourselves and some of the people around us that they are early birds or night owls, and there are more extreme versions of that. And all of this is to wrap back around to your question, which is, People of the same, what we call chronotype, that is the same phase, do not always meet each other. And somebody wants to go to bed earlier and somebody wants to go to bed later or will sleep best in those times. And if one of those bed partners tries to conform to the other person's chronotype and desires, that will often precipitate an insomnia because they're trying to get into the wrong phase for themselves and sleep will never go quite as well. So one of the things we might say is it may not be always perfectly the right idea for everyone to go to bed at the same time just because the partners want to. It is certainly okay to utilize our bed for other marital kinds of activities. I don't think I need to say more about that. People can go to bed whenever they want. They can even talk about cuddling and talking to each other and using some of that time. All of that is probably fine. But if somebody knows that they're not ready for sleep, it might be best after their partner falls asleep to leave the bedroom or vice versa, to go earlier, even though their partner wants them to stay up late with them. The, the other thing I would say is there was just a paper that came across my desk now. We've known for a while that one of the things that would be nice to add to CBTI when you can get it is to involve bed partners in the therapy, in large part because the therapy itself is very counterintuitive. Telling people not to try to get as much sleep as they can today or compensate for it right there is counterintuitive. And when we tell patients to do the things that they're going to need to do to get their sleep under control, when they bring that home to their partner and they're the one communicating the information for the first time, it often can get garbled like a game of telephone. And it's not uncommon for bed partners who are well-meaning to then sabotage the treatment because they're thinking that the doctor is just a quack and that it's crazy to be doing the things that we're asking the patient to do and that they should just stop doing that. And that, that makes it much more difficult for the bed partner. So I always say, even in the beginning of therapy, if you can get a bed partner into the room, number one, from assessment point of view, the bed partner is going to give you a wealth of information, not just in terms of how that person might be sleeping, but what kinds of napping and dozing and sleeping may be happening during the day, whether there are any other signs and symptoms of other sleep disorders that we need to be aware of. 
And it's also very useful to have them in the first sessions because that's the heaviest load for doing the education and making it clear to patients what they need to do, but also why they need to do it. And when the bed partner is hearing all of this along with their partner, they become much more an ally because now they get it. They can understand the rationale from, a, from an ed, at least an educational point of view. Yeah. And in systemic therapy, we call this expanding the system for those reasons you said, like we preach on the show all the time. Your client does not have to translate it home to their partner and their partner can be there as a guest, an informant on the cycle. So this work, I'm so happy to hear you say that can easily be made relational. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you another question we got a lot, which could be controversial. You will have some clients that say, ah, Don, I don't want to do all that. I'm just going to take my Ambien and reset that way. And also see a lot of partners argue like, I don't want you relying on prescription sleep medication. How does prescription sleep medication fit into this mix? And then how can we as collaborative systemic therapists work with physicians or sleep specialists to coordinate care? Let me just cycle back to the bed partner question. I would not only say that we're willing to have that happen in CBTI, it's encouraged. So I think it's a great idea because, of course, people are sleeping. They're not only sharing a, a, a house with somebody or an apartment, they're sharing the bed. So it's really a good idea, at least in the early phases, to get that person in there. And I like this idea of expanding the system. But the other thing that will get asked to get more specific is it's just that bed partners can be helpful in just reminding patients of the things they need to do. But it's not necessary, for instance, for bed partners to stay awake at night with the patient. I don't think that's needed. I think it's useful for patients to learn on their own that there are certain things they need to do. That includes what to do in the middle of the night when they're not sleeping. They don't need to wake their bed partner. During the day, they're going to have to try to boost their sleep drive by staying awake. And how they do that, they need to ultimately take control of themselves. I have patients who will say, I'm trying to stay awake in the evening when I'm watching television and my partner nudges me whenever they see that I'm sleeping. But I will tell all of your listeners that by the time that partner has to nudge the person to stay awake, it's already too late. They've already slept enough close to bedtime that, that it's already going to interfere with their sleep. So the person has to take steps themselves to keep themselves awake, but the partner can be supportive. With regard to medications, what I would say to any patient, first of all, these medications work. They are, in fact, maybe the best treatments for acute insomnia. That's what they were really intended for. But when it comes again to chronic insomnia, they really are not the best medications. And in fact, there is now a wealth of data and guideline papers in the treatment of insomnia that say is that CBTI should be the frontline treatment for chronic insomnia above and beyond prescription sleeping pills or even over-the-counter sleeping medications simply because the effects of CBTI are equivalent to hypnotic medications in the short run, but are much better in the long run. If you stop sleeping pills after a while, often the problem comes back. What you've learned in CBTI is the gift that keeps giving. You can't unlearn what you've learned. And in the long run, people stay well. One-year follow-up, two-year follow-ups. There are papers on three-year follow-ups. People are still doing sensationally well. So it's the best treatment for that reason. But that said, if somebody had chronic insomnia and said to me they're using a medication and it's working great and they sleep great, maybe if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The problem is we know that the long-term ramifications of sleep medications for many people are very problematic. Number one, they can be, many of them, habit-forming. 
create dependency. And one of the things that happens in dependency is tolerance. And once patients start to become tolerant to sleep medications, what used to work will stop working as well as they go further into use of that medication. The medications themselves have sedating side effects. They can have effects on memory. They can have, especially as we get into an elderly age, problems with regard to risk for falls, more problems for memories. There are papers to suggest that the sleeping pills themselves can be a risk factor for dementia. And I I once heard a colleague give a talk at one of the sleep conferences where everybody is on board with the idea of not giving elderly individuals heavy doses of sleep medications and trying to do something else. But this person reminded everybody that since it's very difficult for patients to come off of these sleep medications, if they start to work for them initially, and then they get all kinds of rebound insomnia as they're coming off, that when you're prescribing a medication to someone at the age of 30, it's very possible that you're prescribing it to them at that point for their age at 60 because they'll still be wanting to use it. So that's something to keep in mind. CBTI is definitely a therapy that can help people to wean off of these medications if they're coming to the therapist already on something. That is often one of the reasons they will present is they no longer want to be on it. And we can do that. And yes, as you put it, that would be done in collaboration with the prescribing physician. And often I can tell you from experience that prescribing physicians are more than happy to have someone who understands how to treat sleep helping them with the problem and more than happy to get their patients off of chronic sleep medication. I have learned so much this hour. You are a wealth of knowledge. If I'm a therapist out there and I want to know more, Don, about your training, about CBTI, what are the best resources? Where do I go if I want to work this into my repertoire with the individuals and couples? Okay. First, let me plug myself. I do trainings, as I said, across the country. They are at various points. I'm doing a training for Michael, my partner, Michael Perlis and I are doing a two-day training for the Psychological Society of West Virginia in March. I think they're going to open that up to the general community. He and I at the University of Pennsylvania do a basic CBTI two-day course. We've started that up again since COVID. We just had one in October. We do an advanced course for people who have now started to do the work some and then do want to get more learning about general aspects of behavioral sleep medicine. We do an advanced course in April. Somebody has to have taken at least some version of it, of a basic course first to get into that course. I, there are streaming abilities of you seeing us doing old courses and me doing individual one day courses at PESI, P-E-S-I, which is a lecturing organization. So if you went on there right now, you'd see that I'm going to be giving a series of one-day lectures in different towns for three days out west in Washington and Oregon. Those links for registration are up. But there are also streaming services and DVDs uh, of those lectures. So there are a lot of ways that you can begin to get some of the basic course Let me not only tout myself, PESI has other lecturers on insomnia, including a woman by the name of Colleen Carney, another one of our great expert colleagues in the field of behavioral sleep medicine from Toronto. So you can see some of her DVDs and her her streaming lectures. There is something on the web called CBTI Web, which is a course that was put together online by one of my old interns who I trained. So that's out there. 
And again, there are other people who are doing these courses. So if you just start looking for training opportunities, you might find them. And I got to plug where I first heard of you, which is still, I think, the gold standard cognitive behavioral treatment of insomnia session by session approach with your colleagues, some of who you mentioned today, which I think is a great overview to what we've been talking about today. Yeah, thank you so much for the plug. And that's a session by session guide. And I can tell you that we're in the process, I'm in the process of writing a second edition of that to update everything. But uh, right now, if somebody wanted to tear into that, they're going to get a pretty good understanding of what to do in each session to start. And the other thing I would say is nobody gets good at doing anything. We didn't get good at the therapies that we did in graduate school just by taking classes. We all got supervision. So there are a number of us out there that are doing consultation. I do that myself. So if you've taken a basic course and you want to get consultation on, geez, I'm starting to see some of these patients, but you're right. I'm trying to think outside of the box. I don't have enough experience yet. What do I do here? How do I do this? How do I get a practice going? There are consultants that are available to do that, to help you through some of those patients, to look at data together, to make suggestions about what to do. There is a Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. They offer, offer courses from time to time. And so you can go to that webpage and even without being a member, you can find people who are certified behavioral sleep medicine specialists, either to refer your patients to for chronic insomnia or to see if you can find people who would be willing to do consultation with you if you become interested in this and want to do the work. Dr. Don Posner, I can't thank you enough. You corrected so many myths. I think we as clinicians and just the general public have about sleep and sleep health and gave us so many resources. There will always be some listeners that want to keep the dialogue going. If somebody wants to reach out to you, what is the best way to contact you? Yeah, my, my email is uh, D, that's my first initial and last name, at what is now my consulting company, sleepwellconsultants.com. Um, that's sleepwellconsultants with an S at the end, dot com. Dr. Don Posner, thank you so much. Again, you want to check out sleepwellconsultants.com, which has links to those workshops, both upcoming live webinars and on-demand offerings, sleepwellconsultants.com. Check out his various books on CBT, including Cognitive Behavioral Treatment for Insomnia, that we talked about, a session-by-session guide. What a great way to start off our sixth season and the new year, a New Year's resolution to sleep better. This episode, feel free to even recommend to your non-therapist friends. It's really a crossover episode that I know I will be sharing. I learned so much and uh, such a well-spoken, articulate man, passionate uh, for what he's doing. And it's something that can help us all, whether we're working with individuals, couples, or families. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. That's where we get a lot of our show suggestions from you, the listener. You can get a hold of me, Eli, at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can also check out www.EliCaram.com. That's where you can find out what I'm doing outside of the podcast, including trainings I offer on demand nationally around the common factors that we've talked about and preparing MFTs to take the national exam. So I have some online on-demand trainings as well as the two books that you can get bringing common factors to life with my co-author, AAMFT president-elect Adrian Blow and the MFT exam 
prep book from Springer Publishing. It serves as both an NFT text and a great guide to get you ready for taking that national exam. And, uh, thanks so much for the feedback we've gotten from our listeners around that. Can't wait to be with you all year long as we break some new ground on the podcast. I have some very exciting announcements coming up. In the meantime, check us out. Apple, Cast, Spotify, Google Play. We got five seasons now starting the sixth worth of back shows with the movers and shakers and NFT and important topics like today's topic, sleep, that relation-based therapists care about. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.